Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from October of 2017 on oil and soil as forces of climate change. To find out about future science cafes, please visit ummnh.org. Good evening, everyone. I'm standing here in the middle of the room, and we're going to get started now. Hi. Welcome, everybody. We're going to get started now. Thank you all very much. Thanks so much for coming this evening. My name's Amy Harris, and I'm director of the Museum of Natural History, and we're the organizers of this Science Cafe series. Uh, Tonight's Science Cafe is called Oil and Soil, the Forces of Climate Change. I'm glad to see you all here. Um, We'll talk in a few minutes about the sponsors of tonight's program, but first I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking Connor O'Neill's for making this room available. Um, With that, I will turn things over to Kira Berman, our Assistant Director for Education, who's the mastermind of the Science Cafe series. Thank you, Amy. I think we're in our 11th year of doing science cafes, and um, every time I I introduce a cafe, I think it's the best one, but this one really is the best one. Um, (laughs) I'm not kidding. Um, So tonight's title is Oil and Soil, the Forces of Climate Change, Um, and uh, we have two sponsors uh, this evening. We have Science for the People, uh, which is an organization. I think Yvette Perfecto is their representative uh, this evening. Would you like to say just a couple words about Science for the People? Yes, yeah, Science for the People is an organization that started in the 70s of scientists that wanted their science to be meaningful and do good for the people. And it started with uh, their opposition to how science was being used uh, in the Vietnam War, so in the, in the 70s. And, uh, and then, uh, well, it has continued, and now it's very strong here in Ann Arbor. We did a science cafe last year, I think it was. And this time we're sponsoring uh, the whole week of events related to climate change. It's the bicentennial celebration of the University of Michigan, and they invited us to organize uh, and, uh, events related to climate change, and this is one of the events. Thanks. And then the, the other thing that I'm supposed to say is what you just said, that this is, this is part of a week of events uh, called MC Squared, Michigan and the Climate Crisis, uh, and that's part of the bicentennial uh, of the university. So very proud to be a part of that. Um, so tonight's format um, is, is pretty regular. We'll have a, a couple of short presentations. Um, in this case, one of our speakers uh, needs to leave early, so we'll have a few questions, a few questions just after the presentations. Then we'll go to discussion at your tables, and then uh, we'll come back together at the end for a moderated group discussion, and I will moderate. So uh, at this point, I'll ask you, if you can, to silence your cell phones, and we will, we will get started So without further ado, let me introduce tonight's speakers. So I'll introduce them in the order that they will um, speak. I'm so thrilled that you guys are both here. I I think it's really a privilege. Jennifer Blesch is an ecologist and assistant professor in the School School for Environment and Sustainability and in the Sustainable Food Systems Initiative at the University of Michigan. She studies how diversification of agricultural systems impacts soil carbon and nutrient cycling processes. Her research also explores social and political factors that support transitions to more sustainable food systems. She received her PhD from Cornell University in soil and crop sciences, and before coming to Michigan in 2014, she received a National Science Foundation Award to conduct postdoctoral research on land reform and agroecology in central western Brazil. Please welcome Jennifer Blesch. And Juan Cole is uh, the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. Um, He's well known for three and a half decades. He's sought to put the relationship of the West and the Muslim world in historical context. His most recent book is The New Arabs, 
How the Millennial Generation is Changing the Middle East. Um, and he's also authored, well, probably more books than I could mention uh, in a pub when you guys are waiting for him to talk. So um, he has appeared on many television programs, um, including Nightline, Rachel Maddow, and not to omit the Colbert Report, <laughs> Democracy Now!, and many, many, many more. He's written widely about Egypt, Iran, Iraq, and South Asia. He has written about the upheavals in the Arab world since 2011, including about Sunni extreme, extremist groups and Shiite politics. He has regular columns in The Nation and Truth Dig. Cole speaks many languages and uh, lived in various parts of the Muslim world for more than a decade and continues to travel widely there. So please welcome Juan Cole. Thank you, Kira. Yeah, I think I have this mic on too. All right, hi everyone. Thanks to Kira, thanks to the sponsors, the Museum of Natural History, Science for the People, MC Squared, um, for hosting this important event on a really important topic. Um, so there's a lot of attention recently on climate change following our presidential election, following hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria. What I'm going to address in my short presentation is the relationship between agriculture and climate change. I do have a few visuals, but it's not totally critical that you see them, so up to you if you want to turn your head. Um, and the situation is pretty grim, but just in case you tune out, since we are at a bar and many of you are drinking beer, um, I'll give you the punchline of my talk right away. Not all forms of agriculture contribute to climate change equally, and we actually know quite a bit about the types of management systems and practices that can help mitigate and adapt to climate change. Um, next slide, please, Kira. Thank you. So the evidence is very clear that humans have influenced the global climate system. Does anyone here happen to know what proportion of greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture? 18. That's very close. Yeah, so, so some, some sources say 18. The IPCC report in 2007 puts the estimate at 10 to 12 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, so a sig significant chunk of the contribution. Agriculture, particularly industrial agriculture, contributes to three main sources of greenhouse gases, so carbon dioxide from the production of fertilizer from on-farm fuel use during field operations, and also from respiration from soil. Uh, methane from animal production and rice production, and nitrous oxide comes primarily from soil emissions, so microbial processes that happen in soil, hence the title tonight, Oil and Soil. It's also important to note that the intensification and industrialization of agriculture um, has really been propped up by large inputs of fossil fuels. So functions that used to be provided by species diversity within farm fields are now provided by fossil fuel-based inputs, and I think we'll hear more about the politics of how we acquire those inputs in the next presentation. So this, I just want to bring it closer to home for a second. There are a lot of predicted changes in Michigan that we're expected to see with climate change over the next 50 to 100 years. Um, we're going to be seeing hotter um, summers, so warmer winters and summers, more extreme heat days like the ones we've had over 90 degrees. That image in the top left there shows the, a visualization of where Michigan could end up. The red is the worst case scenario that by 2080 we might have a heat index like Oklahoma. But even in the best case scenario, we're looking a bit like Missouri. Um, so definitely going to have changes, a longer growing season by 15 to 40 days. And our precipitation happening in more extreme events. Migratory insects are also expected to arrive earlier. And with the longer growing season, they'll have more generations per season. So that means that some farmers will apply greater pesticides to deal with that issue. So there's no question that climate change is going to have big impacts on our food system. So what do we do about that? Well, we need both mitigation and adaptation. And by mitigation, I mean types of practices that can actually reduce emissions or lead to carbon sinks in the soil. Um, but even with those measures, even if we were to take extreme measures today, um, we're still going to see effects of climate change. So we also need adaptation that allows our systems to be more resilient. So in the U.S., the contribution of our greenhouse gas emissions is closer to 9%, not because we're more efficient, but just because we have more emissions from other sectors. 
Um, but the U.S., 80% um, of our nitrous oxide emissions come from agriculture. So I want to focus a little bit of my presentation on nitrogen. Nitrogen is a really important nutrient. You probably know it limits crop yield. Um, it's also the number one source of energy use in agriculture, so from uh, the fossil fuel inputs to produce nitrogen. It's also one of the most important and least understood components of global greenhouse gas emissions. One molecule of nitrous oxide can contribute 300 times to the greenhouse effect compared to a molecule of carbon dioxide, in part because of its long residence time in the atmosphere. Nitrogen also contributes to water pollution. That's fine, you can change it if you want. <laughs> um, and so there's no question that um, this is a grand challenge for agriculture. How can we continue to grow food while reducing these nitrogen losses? So for nitrous oxide, I mentioned there are several sources. Um, there is some emissions from fossil fuel combustion, but the primary source of nitrous oxide is emissions from soil, and in particular, two microbial processes that happen naturally in all soils. They're called nitrification and denitrification. And ecologists have long known that when we have surplus or excess nitrogen in an ecosystem, we get more losses of nitrogen to surrounding environments. And agricultural systems, especially industrial ones, have a lot of excess nitrogen, in part from um, these large inputs of commercial nitrogen fertilizer in very soluble forms. Right? So we add the forms to fields that plants prefer to take up, but those forms also happen to be very mobile in water or, or in, to the atmosphere. And so the proportion of that nitrogen that doesn't end up in the plant is available for loss to surrounding ecosystems. Um, the other important thing to keep in mind in industrial farms is that they tend to have reduced soil organic carbon. That's found in soil organic matter. So these degraded soils mean that the biological mechanisms that can hold nitrogen in the soil are disrupted. And what we see on average is that 40 to 50 percent of applied nitrogen fertilizer actually ends up in the crop. So pretty leaky systems. Um, I want to tell you a quick story, like, so what can we do about all of these losses? And I'll illustrate that with a quick story um, from the Corn Belt. So we're, we're just on the edge of the Corn Belt here, and many of our farms are large monocultures of corn and soybean. In Michigan, we have some wheat as well. Um, but you can actually find a, a wide range of farms, and maybe some of you are, are those farmers or know those farmers. So you can find certified organic farms and low-input farms and rotationally grazed farms, biodynamic farms. And so we did a study in the Corn Belt where we sought out 100 farms who captured that whole range of practices that you can find in the landscape. And we used this approach that you see here uh, called a nitrogen budget, which gives you a metric of the potential for nitrogen pollution from a farm or a field. So you basically sum up the inputs of nitrogen to the field from fertilizer or legume nitrogen fixation or manure and subtract nitrogen removed in the harvested crop. And if the difference is a large positive number, that means there's a lot of excess nitrogen hanging around in that system that could be lost. So what we found was that even on uh, these farms that had some of the most cutting edge best management practices for commercial fertilizer use, things like precision agriculture, they still had surplus nitrogen of roughly 30 to 35 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year, if that means something to you. Um, there were farms, though, that had low or no nitrogen surplus at all. And those were the farms that had much more diverse crop rotations, so a lot of different species in the rotation, um, especially cover crops, or that had organic nitrogen sources, and especially legume nitrogen fixation. So that's a source of nitrogen that adds both carbon and nitrogen to the field at the same time. And that's sort of the key piece. Farms that had perennials in rotation, so things like forages for animal feed, also had low or no nitrogen surpluses. So what came out of this was this emerging understanding of an ecological approach to nitrogen management that adds carbon and nitrogen to soils together, allowing the biological mechanisms for nitrogen storage and cycling to occur. This is primarily carried out by microorganisms in the soil. And that's very different. So this idea of managing plant diversity to sustain yield or to sustain function is a very different framework from the dominant framework we have in industrial agriculture that tells us, oh, we should override all of this ecological complexity with fossil fuel-based inputs. So that's a nice story, but it's not quite that simple. And I just want to point that out since this is a science cafe. Um, so 
we know at an ecosystem scale a lot about the relationship between management and nitrogen surplus, excess nitrogen, but understanding variability in the specific processes like nitrous oxide emissions at smaller scales is less well understood. Some of you might be familiar with um, Kellogg Biological Station. That's a long-term ecological research site that's just west of us in Michigan. And they've been doing this experiment, these data are from KBS, um, for the past 25 years. They compare different types of cropping systems and collect all kinds of data from those systems. And what the panel on the left is showing you is that in general, the nitrous oxide emissions are greater from any cropping system that has annual species in it. Those are species that we plant every year, right, like corn, soy, or wheat, um, compared to rotations that have perennial species. Now, you, if you can read the fine print, the, more, the troublesome finding up there, perhaps, is that the conventional corn, soy, wheat with chemical input rotation has the same emissions as the organic rotation. It's called biologically based up there. So the same nitrous oxide emissions. But that's why you need to look at the panel on the right. So when we think about impacts on global warming, we have to think about a system from a, a full budget perspective. What's the net effect of these inputs and outputs to the atmosphere? And here you can see the global warming impact of the chemically based system is a lot greater than the other systems. And the biologically based or the organic system is actually sequestering carbon to date. And that's partly because it's transitioned from a highly degraded state. So this won't necessarily continue indefinitely, but this really captures the fact that there are far less emissions from all of those inputs in the organic system. That said, I, I put this up here to point out that we still have a lot to know. Nitrous oxide is the most important source um, of greenhouse gases from agriculture anyway or agriculture is the main contributor to nitrous oxide emissions. Um, so understanding this sort of smaller scale variation in processes is an important research step that a lot of people are undertaking. So that even within alternative systems, we can think about how to optimize and tweak management to reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions. So that said, um, we still do know quite a bit, right? We know a lot about the types of systems that are more efficient and that will reduce um, emissions. So some scientists actually uh, look at this and say, well, maybe this means we need to completely redo the hardware of our industrial agricultural systems, right? Maybe uh, rather than tweaking the software, the management, even though organic is, is um, a good step, maybe it's not enough, maybe we need to go back to perennial crops, start all over and breed um, perennial plants to be grain, like perennial grains um, that maintain the traits, the beneficial traits of perennial species, like those extensive root systems that scavenge nutrients and sequester carbon, um, but also produce a harvestable crop that people can eat. So scientists at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas are working on that um, with colleagues all around the world. Um, has anyone had long root ale before? That's actually a beer. It's uh, offered by Patagonia, I think, that uses the perennial wheat bred by the Land Institute. Um, and hopefully that won't ruin your beer here tonight, thinking about the nitrous oxide emissions that went into producing it. Um, so <laughs> we can... Even though there are these sort of longer-term goals and thinking about how can we make ecologically-based management even more efficient and even more sustainable, um, we do know quite a bit already, and there's much more that could be done. And so the last point that I want to argue here um, is that even though I think we need more science, we need to understand these complex processes better, we actually already know quite a bit. And so the most proximate barriers to change are really social, political, and economic. Um, and just to... To illustrate that, if you were to take a map in the U.S. of where all of the commodity payments go from the farm bill, the payments to farmers to grow grain crops, at a county scale, that would overlay almost perfectly with where we see the biggest pulses of nitrous oxide emissions. So we have these really vast investments, including taxpayer dollars, um, that prop up these systems and sustain the unsustainable or keep these sort of leaky systems going. Um, the next and last slide. So to, to wrap up, I want to turn to the good news um, and, and say this hopeful fact that um, our food system is socially constructed. And what I mean by that is that the food system we have today is not inevitable in any way. 
it came about because of the decisions and actions that people made based on particular beliefs and values. So that means that other food systems are possible. Given the current power structures um, and the lock-in of the current system, that will take really significant grassroots organizing. It will also take a lot of you know, building up the ecological science base that can inform more sustainable food systems and also learning from all of the really wonderful farmer-driven um, innovations that we can see on landscapes that are more sustainable. And one example um, social movement that works towards these goals is the movement for food sovereignty. Just wanted to bring that to your attention. So that's a global agrarian movement that started in the mid-1990s. Um, you can now find members of that organization in the, in the U.S., um, including in Detroit. And basically, food sovereignty calls for farmers, fishers, and consumers to be able to determine agricultural policy and practice in a way that respects both cultural and farming system diversity. So it has a very explicit um, social justice lens. And we did some research with farmers in this movement in Brazil. And the quick take-home point is just that um, the farmers in that movement who had access to these stable markets for more diverse fruit and vegetable production um, had much greater agrobiodiversity and resilience to climate change, and they were able to sustain more dignified rural livelihoods. And the way that those markets came about was through a government procurement program that they, in fact, had helped to create. Um, so all of that is to say that there are many alternative futures and food systems, um, and that markets and policies are created by people, of course, and so that means that we have the agency to, chain that, to change them um, and to make our food system more sustainable. So thank you. Well, um, I'm going to talk more about... Uh, uh, not how green greenhouse um, gases are uh, produced so much as what they're about to do to the region of the world that I uh, study, the Middle East. Um, uh, the, it's an, it is an ironic story because uh, very large amounts of uh, hydrocarbons have come out of the Middle East. Uh, the, one of the major sources of petroleum uh, and natural gas in the world especially the Persian Gulf. Uh, and um, a lot of the hydrocarbons that have come out of the region. Uh, uh, and, and so uh, now it's, it's going to affect the region in a, a, a rather um, dire way. Uh, the Middle East is an arid zone. There's a, a fairly stable uh, area of aridity stretching from Morocco into the Gobi Desert over on the China side, going all through what we call the Middle East. And uh, it has had a profound effect on people's lifeways. Middle Easterners in pre-modern times uh, were experts in water management because of the aridity. Uh, we think about uh, tribes in the Middle East. Well, pastoral nomadism is an adaptation to aridity because you have a lot of land that can't be farmed. It doesn't get enough water to be farmed. Uh, it's not near a body of water that you can irrigate. So then uh, it does, however, have some pasture, and it springs up here and there, you know, when there's a, a storm or when there's a, a snow melt uh, and so forth. So if you get together your camel, sheep, and goats, and you can wander around until you find that pasturage. Well, that's what creates tribalism. It creates, uh, and in pre-modern times, maybe a third of the population in the Middle East were pastoralists. Uh, they were livestock uh, uh, experts uh, who made use of marginal land. So that arid zone really dictates a lot about the region. Uh, and uh, it's a long, very long-term uh, a meteorological feature of the Earth that's at least 2,000 years old. Uh, and um, it, the bad news is that all the projections about the impact of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are that it will increase the aridity and the heat in the Middle East. This is highly undesirable. Anybody who has ever spent <laughs> even a day in, in the Persian Gulf... Uh, uh, in, in Dubai or someplace like that in the middle of July, you wouldn't want it to be drier and you wouldn't want it to be hotter, but it's going to be. Uh, so already 
there are some towns uh, along the Persian Gulf, uh, littoral on the Iran side, uh, where in the last couple years we've been recording 150 degrees Fahrenheit uh, in the middle of the summer. Well, uh, the average temperature of the surface of the Earth is going to go up at least 3.6 Fahrenheit uh, degrees Fahrenheit. I, I talk in Fahrenheit because Americans don't know, don't understand. I, I've had people tell me, "Well, it's only going to go up two percent. I mean, two two degrees." I say, "Yes, that's two degrees centigrade. It's almost twice as much Fahrenheit. So we're going to go up nearly four degrees Fahrenheit." But that's an average. Oceans are cold, and you know some parts of the Earth are cold, and so forth. So the Persian Gulf's going to go up more than four degrees, and that's if we hold it to four, because we're likely to overshoot that the way we're going on. Uh, and so I, I think you're getting to the point where you're just going to have to declare those towns on, in the Persian Gulf uninhabitable. Uh, well, I'm telling you, it's 150 degrees now, and it's going to get hotter. It's going to get hotter gradually over the next century. Uh, so the, the, um, uh, it's, it's imminent. Uh, many of these climate effects that people talk about as though they're science fiction that are going to happen in the future are happening now. Uh, there, there is increased aridity in the region now. And the thing, the thing is, you, you always have uh, denialists or uh, just the uninformed ask, well, is this really caused by climate change? That's not the right question. Hurricanes aren't caused by climate change. There have been hurricanes all along. But they're made worse by climate change. And you have hotter water, you have, you have more intense hurricanes. So um, the, uh, the, the temperature of the... Caribbean now is is uh, a good degree centigrade warmer than it was in 1950, and that's bad. And that's that you know we 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 never had a, 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 in, in recorded history since 1880 when we started being able to record things. Never had a hurricane being be able to go for three days along at 185 miles an hour. This has never happened before uh, in, you know, in recorded, uh, uh, in recorded history. Uh, and uh, so these, these effects are, are already happening. So that 150 degrees is already in effect. You know, the, 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 the hottest temperature wouldn't have been that much uh, e even in the last century. Uh, and so these, the, these effects are getting worse. By the way, if the temperature in the Caribbean is 80 two or so by a average uh, Fahrenheit. Uh, what is the temperature of the Persian Gulf now? Does anybody know? 90. And we haven't even experienced most of the effects of climate change. So it is thought that since hot water makes storms uh, and makes them more intense, we haven't, usually because of the peculiarities of the Persian Gulf, we haven't had a lot of uh, of uh, big storms there, but people are thinking that they're likely to develop. <laughs> They've got very hot water that would feed the winds, and uh, so uh, that's going to cause um, storm surges and so forth. Uh, and um, as it turns out, you can't really see the, the, those maps, but uh, if, if you just uh, intuitively look at them from top to bottom, you see it's... Uh, the temperatures are less red at the top and they're more red at the bottom. So over the next hundred years, this is what's going to happen uh, to that part of the world. Um, and um, the crop yields, if we bring it agriculture, are going to go down uh, in the Middle East uh, by uh, around 30 percent. Uh, and... Whereas the world actually, some of the good news has been that the world has made substantial progress in reducing the number of people who live in absolute poverty, who you know, go to bed hungry and, and so forth. And this has happened all around the world. It's, one of the, it's a, something that nobody knows about, and the United Nations is behind it, and they got governments to work on it. And they've, I think they've gotten it down to less than a billion people now that, that are in absolute poverty as the World Bank defines it. 
and so in the Middle East, it was likely that you could wipe out the last few you know, people who, uh, whose children were going to bed hungry uh, with agricultural advances. Because of this phenomenon, you're actually going to increase hungry children by 2 million. Uh, uh, next slide, please. Uh, so, yeah, this is what I was talking about with regard to the, the Gulf. Uh, uh, in Bandar Abbas, it got to be 150 degrees. Persian Gulf waters are, are, are 90. Uh, and, and now, you know, you, you may have typhoons in a region that wasn't, wasn't famous for them. Uh, but that, that's really uninhabitable. Uh, that's where the, the region is going. Uh, next slide, please. Now... Um, in addition to the problem of too, too much aridity, not enough water, there's also a problem of too much water, which is that the seas are rising. Uh, and again, uh, there's a lot of climate change, I'm kind of amazed that there's so much denialism because a lot of it is simple addition. You know, do you need calculus? Like, uh, all you have to do is total up the amount of... Uh, of, of surface ice uh, and think, well, what would that happen, what would happen if that plopped into the ocean? Uh, oceans, the sea level is rising for several reasons. First of all, hot water expands and has more volume than cold water, so the, as the seas heat up, they will rise. Uh, and then, in addition to that, there are some glaciers in the Antarctic uh, that are held back by, by uh, uh, shelves of ice that if the shelves fall in, that won't really matter much because they're already in the water that's already been taken account of. It's like if you have ice in your glass, it doesn't cause it to overflow when it, when it melts. But they're holding back these glaciers. Some of them are so huge that just one of them could raise uh, sea level by four feet uh, to ten feet. So... Um, and they will go in. I mean, this is, this is not uh, it's just a matter of when. It, it can be hundreds of years or it can be tomorrow. Uh, so um, the, the seas are rising. The IPCC uh, uh, predicted something on the order of a meter, uh, to, uh, maybe slightly more, th three or four feet in American terms, of sea level rise uh, by 2100. That prediction is almost certainly uh, uh, way too conservative. Uh, and I was talking to Michael Mann about this, uh, but y y you're going to five, six feet in this, uh, in this century. And again, simple addition. If you look around you know, on the internet, you can find the elevation of coastal cities and towns. So um, you can tell which ones aren't gonna be there. Uh, or at least, you know, some of their neighborhoods are not going to be there. Um, and so uh, the Egyptian Delta and, and, and other deltas in the world in Louisiana and Bangladesh, but we're talking about the Middle East, the Egyptian Delta is not going to be there. This is not good. Uh, it's relatively low. And, a lot of, and it's very populated. So Egypt is a country of... Uh, uh, roughly 90 million people. And it has a high population growth rate. It had started to level off, uh, but then uh, when they had that revolution, it seems like people became insecure and had more children. So it's, got, it's, it's, its growth rate has gone back up. Uh, and um, so um, a lot of the people in Egypt live in the delta. The Nile uh, kind of has five tributaries that go out into the Mediterranean. That makes rich farmland uh, that's where a lot of people live. That's most at danger for flooding. And some projections are that, this, uh, that, that you'll lose a substantial part of the delta in this century. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and then the question comes, if you have these areas where uh, the agriculture is failing, uh, as predicted, uh, where it's just too hot to live, uh, uh, where uh, uh, you have the seas flooding in uh, and major cities like Alexandria and Tunis kind of start to disappear beneath the waves, uh, obviously people are going to leave. They're going to go somewhere. Uh, and the Egyptians could go, I suppose, upstream to, to Sudan, 
but I don't think that's the way it's going to work. I think they're going to go across the Mediterranean to Europe. So if the Europeans are freaked out by two million refugees from Africa and the Middle East and decided to start electing Nazis in East Germany uh, as a result, what's going to happen to European politics if they get 40 million? Uh, and, um, and, and so the, the, there's going to be a new refugee crisis coming out of the Middle East. And, and these effects of uh, aridity and uh, uh, reduced agricultural yields and uh, flooding will also cause increased tensions and uh, wars inside the region. Uh, there can be wars over water. Just to give you one example, uh, Iraq is a river valley, it's the Euphrates and Tigris River Valley. Uh, the, the headwaters of those rivers are in, in Anatolia and eastern Turkey. Turkey has been damming up those rivers for irrigation for its agriculture. And you're already starting to see increased salinization of soil in some parts of Iraq because there's, the river flow has, has decreased. Uh, there are 35 million or so Iraqis. They seem well armed. Uh, and um, uh, whether they will allow Turkey to reduce them to having no water is a big question for the future. So you could have water wars among these countries uh, which would, of course, exacerbate the outflow of human beings from these regions. Uh, so um, uh, this is the point at which you usually supposed to say, and but there is some good news that, no. no. <laughs> the, the, the only thing that can be done is, is to mitigate the, the, the worst effects of all this, which means we have to stop emitting carbon dioxide and methane into the air now. So like uh, how many hundred thousand, how many hundreds of thousands of tons of, of, uh, of uh, carbon dioxide does Ann Arbor emit every year? Just the university does 700,000 a year. So that's not necessary now. Like you could put solar panels. Uh, Ohio State University, I say this at risk of, of life and limb, Ohio State University leased a wind farm, and it gets 25% of its electricity from wind. The University of Michigan doesn't do anything like that. We're 3% renewable. And uh, Ann Arbor has promoted solar panels, but it really, it's a minor thing. So we're sitting here talking about the effects of all this. We all could be doing something about it. Ann Arbor as a city could be doing something about it. The university could be doing something about it. And the biggest thing that, that could be done is just to stop emitting so much carbon dioxide. Uh, and, and, the, and there are ways to do that. I put solar panels on my house. I'm not a, a, a saint or anything. Uh, I still have a high carbon footprint. But I put solar panels on my house and I bike to work. And there are, I have I, what I believe, and I, I like, I like uh, uh, spicy lentils of the Indian sort, the dal. So there are some days that I, I mark out as, as net carbon zero days in my life. I think we all need those days, and we need more and more of them. Thank you. Okay, wow. Thank you both. Um, so normally at this point in our, uh, in our program, we would go to discussion at your tables. But in deference to Jennifer, who needs to uh, leave uh, in a few minutes, I thought we would spend a couple of minutes uh, asking questions that might be specifically uh, focused to her and, uh, and her research on soil. So, uh, yeah, you want to start us off? Could you compare the emissions that come from raising edible plants versus edible animals? Um, I believe the additional emissions from livestock, well, so that 10 to 12 percent includes livestock production. There's an additional 18% if you include like forestry and land use change. Um, 
So I'm not totally sure what proportion of that 12% is specific to livestock, but it's high. Um, and I think that that hits a sort of important point that I didn't raise, which is that changing diets toward more vegetarian diets is one solution that's often put on the table. Um, if nothing else, just because of the energetic cost of funneling plants through animals before we then consume them. Um, but there are much more sustainable ways to raise animals. Um, there are people looking at this issue from all different levels, too, from ways to actually increase digestion efficiency of feed within ruminants to more holistic approaches that think about the entire cropping system and, for example, whether pasture is more efficient than um, intensive feedlots. So that's a really critical issue. Um, could, you make, could you comment on, you, you talked about the Land Institute and perennial, perennial grasses and things like that. Could you m say something about agroforestry as a mitigating strategy? Yeah, so that would have... Um, roughly the same or more of a carbon sequestration benefit. Agroforestry is a really important practice um, that has similar impacts. So in, in a general sense, um, the role of perennials in carbon sequestration has to do with their extensive root systems in the case of grasses, um, and also the fact that there's much less soil disturbance, right? So you plant a perennial and you don't need to keep tilling the soil or planting it again each season. And with agroforestry, that can go for quite a long time. You also have some carbon that gets locked up in the above ground woody biomass. So that's an important system to consider. Um, I think you could go in, I would actually say that the work of the Land Institute and people who do things like food forests and agroforestry is very complementary. They come at things from the same perspective. How do you mimic the function of the natural ecosystem that was there before agriculture? So the Land Institute is in Kansas, where the natural background system is perennial grasslands. Um, but it would be a similar approach to think about how do you apply those same principles to agroforestry. Yeah, what about the economics of all this? I would, I would think that uh, ecologically sustainable cropping is not really profitable compared to uh, present ways. And uh, I think that would be a big problem stopping it at this point. I haven't seen what your questions are that may end up on your table, but <laughs> um, I, yes, that, absolutely right. So if, especially given the current economic system and policy system, um, if it's not profitable, then there's very little incentive for farmers to adopt it, and they can't sustain their livelihoods unless they're making an income. So um, that's an important thing to think about. What I was trying to raise at the end is the fact that the reason that monocultures are highly profitable right now is because of our farm bill and other policies, as well as the broader research and education paradigm that has gone into developing those systems. So um, there are discussions of how to shift, uh, for example, a portion of commodity subsidies to other types of crops. Um, even things like fruit and vegetable production, so thinking about valuing nutritional yield per area rather than just total yield per area. So there are a lot of creative ideas on the table, but that's exactly right, that right now the barriers are really large because of economics. Uh, you talked about the um, changing the food system uh, to uh, make it more sustainable. Ultimately, though, the food system is expected to support at least today, seven and a half billion people. And that number keeps on rising. I don't know if it'll be 10 billion during my lifetime. Is that sustainable? The question of population itself is outside of my wheelhouse, but I will say from the perspective of agriculture. Um, so one thing we do know is that today we have 800 million people who are either hungry or malnourished, and yet we produce more than enough calories globally for all of those people today. So in this present moment, the, the root cause of hunger is access and poverty um, and a lack of distribution of food to the people who need it, in part because of our, our political or inequitable social systems. That will still actually be the case in 2050 if you look at the math for project, projected calories. There's a lot of complexity. I encourage you to debate this at your tables. What does that mean? What does it mean from the nutrition, like a nutrition or full diet perspective? Um, but I think the, that, yes, we, we do have to think about maintaining or increasing yields, um, but we also have to keep in mind that that's actually not the root cause right now, and we can learn from that fact about how to improve the entire food system, not just the production dimension, but the access and distribution um, and consumption dimensions. I, I know that the ability to openly discuss subjects it varies widely in the Middle East. Is uh, We have a limited discussion on climate change here. Basically, uh, people shout at each other. What is the uh, 
going on in the Middle East? Do they talk about climate change? Is it on the TV? Are there blogs? I mean, what are, are the people actually aware of what's going on? So um, the Middle East is more complicated than the United States seen in this regard in the sense that you have major hydrocarbon producers like Qatar, which is a, a producer of natural gas, uh, which uh, uh, openly campaigns for uh, uh, greater awareness of the dangers of climate change. And Al Jazeera uh, English has been one of the best media uh, on this subject. So, and the, the royal family, I've heard them give speeches, you know, they're really worried about it. Uh, and of course, from their point of view, they, they uh, helped to replace coal, so they, natural gas was better than what was there before. Uh, but in any case, uh, on the other hand, Saudi Arabia, which is a major petroleum producer, uh, is hand in glove with ExxonMobil in uh, climate denialism and paying for it and, and, and so forth. So the Saudis have played a very sinister role in this regard. Uh, outside the countries that produce hydrocarbons, because many countries in the Middle East, like Morocco or Egypt, really have very little in, in that regard, or Syria, um, there are civil society organizations that are discussing these issues. Uh, there's a fair environmental uh, consciousness among youth, for instance, in Tunisia, who are worried about uh, sea level rise and what it will do to the Tunisian coast and the Mediterranean. Uh, and there are some some uh, scientists, for instance, Alexandria University in Egypt, who are going to <laughs> be homeless if if this goes on, uh, who who have been doing studies and so forth. But uh, you know, as you might imagine, uh, there's so much else on their plates uh, at the, the, with wars and terrorism and and uh, revolution and politics that this, I would say, is a relatively minor subject in the region. I'm still concerned about uh, population migration and how that's going to intensify uh, in the future. I, I suggested that many of the climate impacts seem to me likely to uh, increase uh, out-migration from the Middle East. We have about 400 million people living in this uh, arid zone, uh, and it seems to me most likely that they'll go across the uh, uh, Mediterranean to Europe. Uh, it's, it's only about 90 miles from Tunis to uh, to the boot of Italy, uh, and uh, so it's not it's dangerous, and a lot of people are dying. You know, the Mediterranean is a big graveyard uh, with uh, ten, tens of thousands of people ending at the bottom of it already every year. Uh, uh, but uh, that could be millions. I mean, it, 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 the number is, is going to increase. And the, the thing that I worry about is that uh, the immigration that has occurred so far has seems to have provoked uh, uh, a certain amount of uh, ratcheting to the far right among European uh, countries. Uh, and um, you saw this with the recent German elections where uh, Angela Merkel barely held on uh, to the government. In fact, she's going to have to make uh, some unpalatable um, uh, coalitions in order to survive, including with the Greens, uh, for her, uh, unpalatable. And um, uh, and then the third party in parliament is is the uh, um, is the 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 Nazi party, uh, basically. I mean, it's, it's a very far-right party, anti-immigration, all about, you know, kind of a latent uh, white German nationalism. Uh, and so uh, if that happened in part because Merkel let in uh, about a, a million uh, refugees in the past two years uh, to Germany, which had not been a high immigration country unlike France, uh, and, and this was the reaction to it, was the, the rise of the far right, then what would millions of people uh, coming into Europe do to its politics? Uh, and so this is something that I'm very worried about. Could you say something more about the role of Israel in these Middle East questions? The Israelis have had the view that, in, that their long-term security and over-exploitation of the water aquifers and the gas around uh, their area is dependent on keeping the Arab states essentially at war with one another. And it seems like utilizing for political purposes the instabilities created by, for instance, the uh, drought in Syria and the Syrian you know, civil war going on. 
What do you see as the role of Israel as a positive force or as using these questions to aggravate the political situation to maintain their own stability and over-exploitation of resources? Did uh, anyone else want to take that one? Um, well, uh, Israel is uh, threatened in the same way as the other countries in the region by these developments. Um, Tel Aviv is not going to sink under the waves anytime soon, but the Israeli Mediterranean coastline will be eroded by, by rising waters, which ha will have an effect on the country. Uh, and um, Gaza is in greater danger. It's, it's the lowest part of the... Of the uh, of the coast, uh, and um, uh, we'll, we'll lose we'll lose land. Uh, it's not a big place to begin with. Um, with regard to getting through the problems, the Israelis have done very well. Uh, they have established uh, desalinization plants, and they're getting a lot of their water from them now. And they've gotten through. There's been a, 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 a very severe drought uh, off and on since uh, 2006. Uh, which may have fed in, you know, it's controversial, but it may have fed into the Syrian civil war uh, and some of the uh, problems in Iraq as well. But the Israelis haven't suffered uh, those kinds of social uh, turmoil in part because they're very good at water management and they, uh, they, their scientists and engineers uh, uh, have attended to this problem. So uh, they've, they've done desalinization. You know, there are different ways of doing irrigation. Some of them lose more water than others. The Israelis are very good with water conservation. Uh, so um, so, they, uh, so far they're, they're, they're uh, able to survive this, but I do worry that if you have a general 30% decline in crop yields as a, as a result of aridity, there's only so much engineering you can do. And... Uh, and uh, uh, desalinization is expensive, so can you really run Israel just off of that? And of course, it does feed into the conflict with the Palestinians in the sense that uh, uh, the aquifers on the West Bank are being overdrawn by the by the Israeli settlers, so that Palestinian wells go dry, and and then uh, it raises a question of how they're going to live. Um, I would say that. Um, in my view, if, if Israel and Palestine uh, would both jointly go towards solar energy, that it would uh, help to resolve many of their conflicts. Because there's a budding conflict over who owns the uh, natural gas under the sea off of Israel. And um, I think we should leave it there and just uh, put up panels everywhere because it's really sunny. And... Um, and then you don't have to fight over where the electricity comes from. And actually, uh, uh, you know, some of the electricity in the West Bank comes from Israel proper, and then they use that politically, whereas the Palestinians could be, uh, you know, independent. Uh, uh, and then the Israelis themselves would benefit uh, from more renewables. They're very heavily dependent on natural gas, which a lot of it imported, and on petroleum, a lot of it imported, and it has affected their politics and made them vulnerable in the past. So um, it won't solve all their problems, but it would help if they would go renewable. I just want to say, I mean, I know we're talking a little bit about the Middle East here, but all of the comments that you've made tonight are almost exactly what I heard when I lived in the Central Valley of California during the drought like four years ago with the um, cropland around the Bay Area being overwhelmed with salinated water and with subsidence in the Central Valley and with farmers and the people that live in the Central Valley fighting over water. And, you know, it's like you don't have to go to the Middle East to find these problems. It's just, it's really fragile right now. Thank you for that. Other questions? Okay, yes. And... Um, and I want to I want to pick up on some a thread that we heard just before you ask your question, and that is um, the connection between drought and um, social unrest. Uh, and that connection's been drawn, as you said. It's been uh, people have argued about about it. I've seen maps where things are superimposed, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and. In the Middle East or other places, as as we said, it's in on the west coast of the of the U.S. 
uh, there have been droughts there as well. And then we'll go to you. You want me to talk about? Yeah. Well, the, um, actually, I think that water scarcity is already uh, implicated in, in social turmoil in the Middle East. So, for instance, when I wrote my book about the uh, Arab Spring, uh, one of the things that I discovered to my surprise was that in, in Upper Egypt, uh, in the southern part of the country, uh, the peasants joined in the revolt. Uh, it was mainly an urban and youth thing, but there, were, there was some rural buy-in. And uh, they were unhappy over not having enough water to irrigate their crops. Uh, and there's, uh, um, you know, there's a scale, and I don't remember the exact uh, numbers now, but there's a scale of how many gallons of water each person uh, should, should have, according to the United Nations. And the Egyptians are below that level, and the Americans are 10 times that level. Uh, so uh, as they get below that level, you know, people in Egypt live off, uh, still 50% of them live off of agriculture. And uh, if, if those peasants are not getting the water for whatever reason, uh, they're upset. And, and now the, the big danger is that Ethiopia wants to dam the Nile, which could have a downstream effects uh, reducing uh, the water flow. Uh, and, um, and climate change could change the monsoon patterns because the Indian monsoon spills over onto uh, East Africa and creates the Nile uh, down uh, uh, past Uganda. And uh, so if that if aridity and, and, and long-term uh, monsoon patterns shifted in the way that some models suggest they might, the Nile could go away. Well, I lived in Egypt for three years, uh, four years, and I was rained on twice. Um, it's, uh, I, I think it's really funny. They always have like the evening weather report in Egypt to, to imitate the European one. But what could you say? You know, there was a small Nimbus cloud was sighted or... It was, it was all sunny except for, you know, this one cloud. But it, it, there's not much to, to say about the Egyptian weather. It's pretty much the same every day. It's hotter in, in some parts of the, of, the, of the year, but it's all, all sunny all the time and, and no rain to speak of. So if the Nile started drying up, uh, uh, that would exacerbate all the other disasters that are likely to uh, befall them. Herodotus said that Egypt is the gift of the Nile, and so he, he knew that, you know, uh, 2,500 years ago. Uh, I'd like to bring something. Uh, the Malthusian thing is not something I think needs to be talked about very much, but I would like to ask once uh, a couple other questions. No, one other question, really. I, I wonder about the price of oil. We understand, we all understand that we have to stop burning carbon in general. We have to get to a non-carbon uh, non -carbon economy. But with the price of oil, what it is, and the, the way the world economy is going, uh, what is the, the, the role of the Middle East, the OPEC, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, how is that playing out at the present time? Uh, the, so the uh, question is about the oil economy, petroleum, automobiles, and uh, OPEC policy. Um, the OPEC has lost, uh, lost control of the oil markets, or never really had control, but it had a big influence on them. And uh, uh, at the moment, uh, because of the fracking revolution, uh, the, the OPEC no longer can... Uh, can influence prices very much. Uh, prices collapsed on them uh, two years ago, and, and they've basically acquiesced in it. OPEC, you know, when you have primary commodities, cotton or tea or, or, or petroleum, they, they have these wild swings in price. It's built into the primary commodity markets because uh, if, 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 if the price is high, marginal producers come online, and then, but then that puts the price back down. When the price is low, then... Uh, uh, it um, uh, it encourages uh, scarcity, which puts the price back up. So it's it's this uh, constant spring action, and and so OPEC was formed to try to smooth that out. My estimation is that it it's no longer able to play that role. Uh, with regard to the future of petroleum, however, um, 
5% of the automobiles bought this year in California have been electric or, or, or plug-in electric, uh, plug-in hybrids, I mean to say. Uh, and uh, China uh, is going, taking a big position on electric vehicles. Uh, uh, even GM uh, uh, threw its hat into the ring two days ago and announced that uh, it's developing two new lines of electric vehicles. Uh, it already has the, Sh the Chevy Bolt, which is a little expensive, is $35,000, but it, uh, it gets 225 miles on a charge, uh, and uh, for most people's driving most of the time would be perfectly adequate. Uh, and so um, uh, I think that uh, the, the signs are, and, and, and in France and, and India, a lot of countries have announced that they're going to try to put in measures to encourage electric vehicles. My guess is that within 10, 15 years, gasoline automobiles are over with, which means that uh, um, the, the peculiar power and situation of the Persian Gulf part of the Middle East is also over with. Uh, so the Saudis are already scrambling the younger generation to get out of the oil business and into high finance and real estate and so forth uh, to transform themselves using the capital they got from the oil to get into another industry. They're running scared, in other words. So I think, you know, 10, 15 years seems like a long time. It's been pointed out that science fiction novels benefit from this phenomenon that we think 15 years in the future is much further away than 15 years in the past. We, most of us in this room can, under, can remember 15 years in the past really easily. So it's not that long before the, a really massive transformation is going to occur uh, in, in transportation. Wow. Thank you. Uh, so much. We have time for one more question. Um, before we do that last question, uh, I just want to thank Connors. I want to thank all of you. I want to tell you that the next Science Cafe will be November 8th. I'm working on the topic. Uh, I'll get back to you on that. Check their website for details. Um, while we are listening to the very last question and answer, please fill out these little white evaluations and tell me what the future topics should be so that I will have more ideas to get great speakers uh, from the university and beyond. And um, also, please don't forget your wait staff. They have been great. Uh, so don't, don't forget to check with them and get your bill, et cetera, before you go. So I think we had one last question. Yeah, I just want to try to um, maybe tie together the two parts of the Science Cafe here. So. The purported mechanism of, of drought affecting the civil war in Syria is um, agricultural people being driven into an urban environment. Um, and we've already talked about um, an exodus from the Middle East to Europe. I'm curious, though, how you see that interacting with an ongoing demographic shift from uh, agricultural um, lands towards urbanization in the Middle East or elsewhere, and, and this would probably maybe be more a question for Jennifer if she was still here, but um, also is there any hope for sustaining agriculture in this increasingly arid climate without massive inputs from fossil fuel, petrochemical products, and what would that look like? So uh, uh, with regard to urbanization, how it's done matters. So. What I think happened in Syria, although it's the fog of war and it's very murky and getting really good statistics on the ground is impossible, uh, but I, I knew a Finnish scientist who lived in Damascus during the drought years and he managed to get some government uh, info that I think is not widely available. He thought that 70% uh, of the livestock of farmers in northeast Syria died between 2006 and 2010. Uh, and, of course, livestock are some of the more valuable parts of any farmer's portfolio. So many of them were driven off the land and had to go uh, look, look for day work, you know, construction work and so forth in Syrian cities. Um, that wouldn't necessarily cause social turmoil if there were work in Syrian cities. That is, if it were boom times and there were lots of construction jobs there, then 
No, there, uh, we think that actually uh, Engels was wrong and that the English working class uh, income went up because they came into those horrid factories and, and so forth. So uh, it, there's nothing that you can read off you know, and, uh, 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 automatically that uh, urbanization would necessarily lead to social turmoil. But if you have a sclerotic... Uh, um, regime that uh, was socialist and then became neoliberal and uh, created an economy where the Assad family is taking most of the profits and there aren't any new buildings being built in Homs or those uh, small uh, Sunni uh, cities, uh, then a lot of people coming into the slums and looking for work is, is a you know, very dangerous situation. And that, I think, is what happened. That is to say, the, the Syrian revolution is extremely complex. Some of it was students and young people who wanted more civil liberties and uh, other, uh, other factors came into it. Uh, some of it is sectarian. But in all of these matters, I think we just have to think, well, what percentage is being affected by these climate uh, impacts? And the, uh, the, the death of all that livestock in precisely the areas that ISIL then took over. It's very suggestive that some of the turmoil is coming out of that. But it doesn't have to be. And, and other countries in the Middle East, like Turkey, has urbanized uh, in, in ways that have been uh, functional for the country and have been problems. But there were these famous Turkish slums back in the 70s, the Gecekondu, that where people put them up at night because the police couldn't stop them, and then they were fed to Kampli in the morning. And there was one that was really famous, and a book was written out of it. So when I was in Turkey in the 90s, I asked my friends, I want to do Marxist tourism. Let's go to that, to that slum. And so they took me there, and it was gone. Uh, uh, the, the, the buildings had all been bricked in, and, and, and smart entrepreneurs had put factories in the middle of it so that they had cheap labor right at hand. And there was just one little part of it that you could maybe get a glimpse of what the slum used to be. So just to say that, you know, uh, the behavior of the economy more generally would help to determine the answer to your question. But if you have a sta stagnant urban economy, you know, a lot of people chased off their farms by climate impacts, then this is uh, very bad. I'm afraid we have to end on that, on that low note. Um, but there's more beer at the bar. Um, <laughs> and, um, although that causes climate change too as Jennifer was saying so I guess it's a lose-lose situation um, I'll let you work that out later on tonight we need to wrap up I just want uh, to say thank you very much to Juan uh, for spending his time